This afternoon, we're going to be continuing in our walk through the book of Hebrews. Uh, today, we're going to be, we are in chapter tw- uh, continuing in chapter twelve, uh, looking at the next section of our of our learning about growing in the One who is the greater than our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen with open ears as we hear from God's holy word in Hebrews chapter twelve. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith or the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, maybe many become defiled, that no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less well will he escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. 
This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard thus your word. We ask that you would uh, work it deep within us, plant it in us. We ask that you would strengthen us in our faith and our hope and our love. We ask that we would receive your word as it is your word. Do your work in each of us according to your purposes. Magnify yourself in our minds and hearts. Reveal yourself afresh to us according to your word. We ask that you would rest upon this preacher, that you would chain him to the text of your word, that he might freely declare truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we mentioned last time we had been looking at, in the previous section, looking at holding on to the greater than and the absolute vitality of that for Christian life. That is the Christian life, is holding on to the greater than. And now here in in what we would call chapter 12, uh, he gives a therefore and he now says, because of all this, let's let's focus on this now and turn our attention to this. And he's beginning to transition to talking about growing in the greater than growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in our pursuit of him, growing in our understanding of him, growing in the outworking of his sanctifying work in us. And so now he's beginning to focus our attention on that. We saw last time that he opened up with this therefore, as we mentioned in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, mentioning that, uh, first of all, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that's surrounded by such a company of those who have believed the gospel. It's not the idea of they're in heaven watching us or witnessing what we do. I don't think that's really at all what it's talking about. Rather, it's talking about this great cloud of testifiers who have testified to the faithfulness of God to not only make promise, but to keep his promise. And thus, even when they had not received in their lifetime that which that was promised to them, they still held on to the one who made the promise. That is, while Abraham went into the land... While Moses and while the company of Moses went into the land, that really wasn't the promise that they that were all that they're ultimately looking for. They were looking for a heavenly city that has uh, with foundations built by God himself, that in their life they did not see the one who would bring that about. And that's the one who was promised back in the garden who would crush the serpent's head. Messiah. The one to whom all these in their lives, while all these had their unique stories and things they did, are all testifying of a greater reality to come. And that greater reality is Christ. And now that Christ has come, how much more so should we hold on to this? And he says, in light of that, he, he gives a singular command, which is this. Let us run. There's a race which we are running. And the idea is to finish out the race. 
It's not for me to finish better than you or you to finish better than me. It's for us to finish the race. It's a marathon that's being run. And a marathon requires endurance. Any marathon runner will tell you it doesn't matter how many marathons they've run. As soon as they hit mile 18, from what everyone says, I never run a marathon. But once they hit mile 18, it requires a conscious effort to make every single step. The marathon's 26, point, 26 miles and change. And sometimes that is what Christianity is, in which it feels like we're, make, we're putting tremendous effort just to take that next step. In which it feels like there is lead weights in our spiritual feet. And he says, he gives a number of different modifiers of that, of ideas. One of them is taking off every weight and sin. That is turning from sin, turning to Jesus. First of all, holding, getting rid of the unbelief and turning from sin as we, as we know it. Sin can blind us to the realities that are there if we cherish it, if we hold on to it. It can blind us and will blind us to those realities. And then another aspect is looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus who, first of all, is the beginning and end or author and finisher of the faith. And remember, that doesn't say our faith in the Greek. It just says the faith. That is, he begins and ends the faith. He is what the faith is about from beginning to end. Furthermore, that said, he is the beginning and end of our faith. He is the author of our faith, the finisher of our faith. And it says, look to him who endured suffering, suffering on our behalf, making satisfaction for our sin, enduring, facing temptation, having fasted for 40 days, looking at a rock, being told, turn that into bread. And he was hungry. And endured and resisted temptation and said, not my will, but yours be done in the garden and went to the cross on our behalf, endured that suffering. But he endured it on account of or with the or against the backdrop of or because of the joy that was set before him. This joy is set before him. And because of that joy, he said, endure And so it is with us. We have joy set before us that has been secured for us in Christ Jesus. So we have every more reason to endure. We have this promise attached to our endurance. It will end. There will be a finish and that finish will be glorious. And so keep moving. As a song from the I think late 90s or early 2000s said, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, keep going, because there is an end, and it is glorious. And to remember his sufferings on our behalf at the hands of sinners. After all, it was at our hands too, for it was our sin that he went there.
And in verse 3, he begins changing the thought pattern now to another application, another way of looking at it. Verse 3, which we looked at last time, but consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Remember, Jesus endured hostility on our behalf. And remember that, so your spirit, so he says that you may not grow weak, that you might not grow weary in weariness. It is weariness, but he says, so you don't grow weary to remember the sufferings of Christ and all that he did. And because of that, the great joy that we have before us and to consider that and think because he did that, we have every reason to keep going and to endure. And then he says this in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That is. The people specifically to whom are being written, as we've been looking at, are being faced with concern about different things and are considering returning to Judaism, returning and saying, well, just go back to the old sacrificial system. Probably most likely because, as it, as it says said earlier, that they partnered with those who were suffering severe persecution. They saw it firsthand. And now in that temptation, in that thing set before them, in that idea of just go back it'd be so much easier. He said, but you, while you've had to resist things, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. That has not been something that has come across your path yet. You haven't seen anything yet is what he is saying. So why is it that you are now considering this? They had not experienced the persecution of the nature of many other Christians in other places. And yet, as we saw here, they are wavering in their confession. Remember, called upon, we are called upon to run the race, setting aside the weights and the easily besetting sin which is rooted in unbelief and not trusting the promises of God. All throughout the Old Testament story, that is at the heart of every rebellion, was not trusting the promises of God. And so it is with us, not trusting the promises of God, in which we struggle to trust that. And when we turn away, Turn aside from that. It becomes easier and easier to turn away. Setting aside the waste. There's many good things that we hold on to, that we cherish, that are good, even good things. But we hold on to them with iron fists to our own spiritual detriment. To our own spiritual detriment. For those become things that weigh us down. Doesn't mean get rid of them. It means Loosen the grip. Hold on to what really, really matters. Because when it comes to the point of shedding blood, those things will become more important in our minds if we're holding on to them with such a fierce, iron, white-knuckle grip. And we can see, as we're going to see in just a moment... In these difficulties, and we're going to talk about what these difficulties are. We often think of these difficulties primarily in terms of physical suffering of some sort. But in our difficulties, 
one thing that can be seen as he as he's pointing out is seeking to encourage them in the things that are being faced is that they can see and we can see in all these things the fatherly hand of God forming and correcting his people. The fatherly hand of God forming and correcting his people. That is a great source of assurance and a great source of encouragement for the believer who is struggling with many and manifold of things. And he speaks of the discipline of the Lord, which he mentions now uh, in verse 5. And he quotes from the Old Testament. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And that does include uh, those children of God who are also of the female variety. This is actually a direct quote uh, from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, which we would have read uh, approximately um, 26 weeks ago. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. But there's other passages in the scriptures that speak of God's discipline, his training. Another way of speaking of discipline is training. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, a little more. But Job 517 Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the almighty. Remember Job. Job experienced two of the worst days that somebody could experience. And that was all initiated by God and was not initiated by God because God said, Job has done this awful thing. And so, devil, I'm going to let you do this and this and this and that. It was initiated. God said, take my servant Job. He fears me. And then the devil said, well, that's because you protect him. And God says, fine, I'll let you do this and this. and I'll prove to you that he will, he will hold on to me. It was not some sort of retribution that he was doing there. Rather, he was molding and forming Job. You see, we often get in the thought that if we experience some sort of difficulty, it means God must be displeased with us. And if things are going nice and easily, that God must be pleased with us. Those are no sure signs. We don't see God's pleasure in, we don't see God's pleasure or displeasure in the things we see. We see it in Jesus Christ. Psalm 94, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Psalm 119, 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now I keep your word. In Revelation three nineteen, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and rep- repent. So when we think of this idea of discipline or training, there's multiple ways that we can see God acting in this way throughout the scriptures. One of them, as we mentioned, is formative discipline. 
That is training, not necessarily what we would call punishment or punitive discipline, but training, instruction, God using things in our life to uh, confirm our faith as first Peter chapter one verses six through nine says that they 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 serve as the proving ground of our faith mentioned Job a moment ago there was nothing that God stated before that happened in which God said Job has done this so I am going to bring retribution upon him it was a matter and what he was doing, as we can see that later, he was forming Job. These types of formative discipline do have the, do have the ability to bring to the surface things that we see this needs to go. And now that also happened with Job. Persecution can be a form of this. In which God uses persecution to confirm his people's faith, to strengthen their endurance, to grow them in his grace and knowledge. Any sort of thing that brings us to look to our Father can be considered formative or instructive discipline or training. As a matter of fact, we'll quote this in a little bit, Romans 8.28 says that much. God works all things God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, we often stop right there. But the next verse says, Moreover, those whom he, those whom he, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is the good that he is working with all things? Conforming us to the image of his son. There is also corrective discipline. That is where uh, the Lord chooses and we have any host of things for which uh, any of us have any host of things for which God, God could bring corrective discipline. All of us have plenty of rebelliousness and sin and attitudes and things like that at which you could so do. For instance, there's those who are ill because they did not take part in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Or in James, those who are ill because of, of some sort of illness. Or, or those who have died because of, some, because of refusal to repent from the book of 1 John. So those are forms of corrective discipline. But just like formative discipline... For his children, as we're going to see, this is not a cruel form of discipline. We must not allow this passage to tell us this idea. Sometimes we have this picture of God that he's lurking behind a bush quietly, sneakily, just waiting for you to mess up. Just looking for the moment that he can say, gotcha. That is not the picture that's being painted here at all. At all. That is the portrait of God that Martin Luther caused him to stay up all night confessing all sorts of sins. 
confessed so much to his confessor that his confessor told him in all these years of you confessing to me, you have not confessed anything remotely interesting because he had that picture of God. Rather, this is the picture of a kind and loving father who is seeking the good of his children and the formation of his children. In discipline, there's also that which is external to us. That is, things external to ourselves, circumstances, physical difficulties, uh, obstacles that come across our path. Those are ways that God can work formation in us. There is also that formation and instruction and training in the Lord that is internal in its nature. That is internal woes and pains. Being painfully aware of some sort of sin that just won't go away. Maybe it's time to really focus on repenting. Or, and I like the language of some of, some of the folks from the uh, 1700s in which they would speak of of ministering to a dro- what they would call a drooping soul or a drooping spirit someone who is downcast god oftentimes might use those things to form us and not necessarily because he's bringing about some sort of retribution but a matter of training and formation a matter of training mentioned this uh, before but in any sort of formal training program whether it would be military boot camp or there was a missionary boot camp through which i went to which was patterned after military boot camp um but nowhere near to the nowhere near the level of intensity i'm sure but does not as in that missionary boot camp and i'm sure it's the same military boot camp it does not matter whether you do what the person says you're still going to do the run. You're still going to do the push-ups. Because the goal is to form you in the military to, to form you into that which the military wants to form you into. And the missionary boot camp was was not was not was to uh, the purpose to form us and in part to um, create stress and create create stress and create intensity in order to draw out things that we were try- that some of us were trying to hide. And create conflict and help us to grow. But all that is to say that that discipline is not always corrective. It's frequently just formative. The thing is, is we do not have insight into God's mind in that regard. We don't have the ability to read God's mind. So what does that mean? Anything that is in our path is an opportunity to grow and to learn. It means that in all things, we should be driven to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. In all things, we should be driven to Christ when things seem to be happy and when things seem to be difficult. Whether whether we are facing external difficulties or internal difficulties. And the goal of this is always always to drive us into the arms into his arms in and through jesus christ 
to drive us to himself, to go to him and to hold on to him. While we cannot read God's mind, we also remember there is suffering that is common to man. And so we cannot assume that every sort of difficulty is a form of corrective discipline. Because there, uh, there is all sorts of suffering that is common to man. That simply happens because we live in a fallen world with fallen existences. Yet from Romans 8.28, even God is using those for our good, for our conformity to the image of his son. We have a slightly different, are to have a slightly different perspective on the all things and all these things that come across our way. And he goes now and speaks in terms of God's discipline in a number of different ways in this passage. I'm going to do something that I'm doing something in this sermon that I don't do very often. And I'm giving you some alliteration. So first of all, we have the fatherly nature of discipline. Then we're going to look at the fact of fatherly discipline. Then the affirmation of fatherly discipline. And then the fruits of fatherly discipline. So first of all, we have the fatherly nature of discipline. First of all, he speaks of this even in the opening verses in verse 5. My son, do not regard discipline lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Notice what he says here. He speaks of it as fathers to sons, fathers to their, as a father to his children. He instructs, he trains, he disciplines. He forms. And again, as we just mentioned, it's not the picture of a cruel father figuring who a father figure who is just waiting for us to mess up and get us. Rather, it is, as we've seen in this language, it is the good and caring hand of a perfect father who is seeking our good, who is seeking our growth, who is seeking his glory. It is that of a gentle father who is always moving us to his son, his beloved son, that we might rest in him and and receive from him and grow in him. This fatherly discipline is a testimony to his faithfulness. Psalm 119, verse 75, it says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me in faithfulness you have afflicted me so we see the fatherly nature of it it says in verse 7 he's treating you as sons what son is there whom his father does not discipline and again speaking of as son it's speaking of best children his children those who are his Adopted into his household. So this includes, as I mentioned earlier, those of you of the feminine persuasion, the female persuasion. The female part of the species, that's a better way of saying it. But it's a testimony to his goodness. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? And furthermore, he says, if you are left without discipline in which all participated, then you are illegitimate children. 
So he here now he's stated now he's also in addition to stating the fatherly nature of discipline. He's now speaking of the fact of fatherly discipline. The fact of fatherly discipline, the fact uh, fathers discipline, train, instruct their children. Some do well, some do so, so, and some need to be taught better. But all fathers provide discipline and instruction to their children. And it's no different from our father, but as we're going to see, his is of an entirely different nature. His is of an entirely higher character and better character. Every believer experiences the discipline of the Lord in different ways, in different times, in different places. In all things in our life, he is training and instructing us. In all things in our life, he is working in us. Regarding this is something in which the Father is seeking our good. Someone once said when I was experiencing, we were actually experiencing a significant chain of different difficulties. Someone, I remember someone said, I wasn't party to the conversation, but someone said, man, the Lord's really trying to teach you something. It was a phone conversation with a customer service agent somewhere. I remember that. And my thought was, when is that not true? It is always true that God is working to teach us things, to grow us in him. Whether things are well or things are or what from our perspective, not well. It is also his discipline is not only a fact as uh, of an experience for every believer. Because it is fatherly, we are we should not be weary of it. It is fatherly as a good and kind and perfectly loving and holy father. So we have no reason to weary of it. That doesn't mean it's not easy. That doesn't mean it's it's, oh, hey, I'm experiencing difficulty. Yay. In fact, he says none none of this is pleasant at the time. He's going to say in a moment. But yet. Almost always in hindsight, we see God's work. It is in his love that he is forming us, correcting us, training us and growing us. Doing this as one he as as one who loves his sons, one who loves those who are his own. And in that it is also a confirmation of our assurance in verse 7. It is a confirmation of our assurance. The fact that God is working to instruct us is a confirmation of our assurance. One who never experiences any discipline or training is the one who should say, um... Again, we oftentimes will take, we also must be careful not to take something that is spoken of as a confirmation of our assurance and turn that into the only confirmation of our assurance. It's one of many confirmations of our assurances, of our assurance. And our assurance is Christ. That's the foundation of our assurance. 
what founds it. So we've seen the fact of fatherly discipline in verses 5 through 7. That because of his training, we have to endure. He's treating us as sons, which should be a comfort. And then in verses 7, and then also continuing through verse 10, we now also see the affirmation of fatherly discipline. Remember, we just mentioned that the discipline, God's training instruction confirms our faith. It shows that we are not illegitimate children, rather that we are his. And he draws a comparison to an earthly father. In verse 9, besides this, uh, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and and we respected them. Shall we not be more subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Generally speaking, when when a parent disciplines their child, the child typically respects them. Respects the, and now again, this is, this is more of a proverbial statement in which this is not the case 100% of the time. It's a general truism. When it comes to a truism, there's always exceptions to the truisms, just like in the Proverbs. But as a general rule, when a father disciplines their child, the child respects the, the father. Even if for a season the child may go, may, may rebel against it. But then, and he says, how much more so the father of all mercy and kindness? How much more so the eternal father? The father of spirits. How much more so who is the source of our life to receive from him and to learn at his hand and at his feet? It says that uh, human fathers, continuing the comparison, they did so as it seemed best to them. That according to their limited hinds, their limited sights, their limited understanding of situations, as it seemed best to them. Okay, meaning that it it was not perfect. No human discipline, no human parenting, no human anything is perfect. As it seemed best to them, meaning. They saw the situation and they and they disciplined or they provided training and instruction and hindsight. If it comes says, oh, I I was wrong, but has seen best to them. Not perfect and even at times fraught with a mix of kindness and other things. Sometimes there's wrong motives in in fathers who in their their discipline of their children. Sometimes there's uh, Father will come home after a long day of work and take out his frustrations in the form of discipline. And sometimes that discipline is necessary, but it's not always done well. But it's as seen best to them. A father's discipline, though, most quite often, generally speaking, one could say that a parent does the best with what they have, generally speaking. And that's what he's saying. Does the best with what he has. 
there's a there is a there but then there's a bet there's an even greater training and discipline that comes to us and that's from our father our heavenly father his our father's discipline is always for our good it is always for our benefit it is always done in accordance with all of his perfections it is never unjust it is never unholy it is never without his goodness and his loving kindness because he is always all that he is. It is always there. It is always according to his character, always for our good. It is to bring us to share in his holiness. That is to be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And the outworking of his sanctifying work in us, his work in which he's um, working, that he's worked in us in Christ Jesus and is now being worked out to move us to be more in the image of Christ. And for us to be clinging to Christ, who is our righteousness before the Father. It is always for our good. It is always perfect. Never without error, never without false motive, never out of uncontrolled passions, always according to his character. And this, he says, is one of the reasons we can endure it, knowing who God is, the fact that he is seeking our good, that we might cling to him that we might be more conformed to the image of Christ to share in his holiness. A holiness a holiness and righteousness which is counted to us in Christ Jesus already. That we might grow in the likeness of that. And then we see in verses 10 and 11 the fruits of fatherly discipline. Discipline. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We see now that this fatherly, this, this uh, uh, fatherly discipline from a faithful father bears fruit, good fruit. It, it bears the fruit of faith in Christ, who is our holiness. We increasingly depend upon him. We increasingly look to him and hold on to him. And from that, grow in him and delight in him and rejoice in him and hold on to him. Oftentimes, human, uh, human discipline, that is when a father is training their children, it's oftentimes about oftentimes developing and helping a child learn how to be on their own, how to be independent. Our father's discipline has nothing to do with being independent of him. It has everything to do with us depending upon him and holding on to Christ and looking away from ourselves and looking to him. Thus being like him and growing in him. Our Father's discipline is about bring, uh, bringing us to 
instead of looking at ourselves and looking at our situations, to look outside of ourselves to Christ. It is to recognize the what and who that really matters. That is Christ. Furthermore, his discipline, the fruits of the outworking of our sanctification, growing in holiness, to grow in the likeness of Christ. We speak about the law and how the law is not the gospel and the gospel is not law. That is not to say that God's law is bad. It is good. But we must but it is not to confuse law with gospel. Gospel is God's work on our behalf. Law is what God tells us to do. And for a Christian, the law has now has a, we have a different perspective in which God says, you're alive. Now do this as a matter of thankfulness. And God uses everything in our life to grow us into that likeness of Christ. We look at those Ten Commandments. And we see the pattern of living to which God has called his people. From the life that he has given us in Christ Jesus. And it's not just on the surface of those Ten Commandments. Go back and listen to our series on the Ten Commandments. Or read uh, a book we like here is also called Pathway to Freedom. Read that and you will see that it's far more than what's on the surface of those Ten Commandments. Rather, there's not only when it says you shall not kill, there's not only the obligation to not kill. There's also the obligation to not do the things that lead to killing. Furthermore, there's also the obligation to promote the promote the good and welfare of our neighbor's life and to promote their their liveliness. So growing in his likeness, loving and worshiping God in Christ Jesus to bring us to be more faithful worshipers of him, part of our sanctification, to be zealous to worship him, to be and to be faithful to worship him, both in our corporate worship and in our all of life worship to which he's called us. And love our brother and sister in Christ to seek the good of our brother and sister in Christ and to seek the good of our neighbor who may not know Christ. And consider what he says in verse 11. For the amount, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We might say that um, he has a knack for stating the obvious right here. No discipline seems pleasant. Rather, it seems painful at the moment, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's no time in which we find ourselves facing discipline, whether we are, whether as children, when we're being disciplined by our, by our own parents, or when God is engaged in training us, which sometimes the training is more intense than others. It's very often in the, it is in fact, at that time, it not does not seem pleasant but the fruit that is born from it makes it all worth it. Makes it all worth it. For if one faces, someone faces a very difficult situation, one like that they've never faced before, 
And then they make it through having held on to Christ, having seen growth in it. Future things may face say, oh, this isn't anywhere near like that. And I remember the fruit we bore from that. The fruit makes it worth it. The fruit of righteousness. The fruit of growing in him. The fruit of rejoicing in him. The fruit of holding on to what really truly matters. This discipline is also not something that is only for when we are new believers or young Christians. It is for our entire life. Whether we've been Christians for uh, six weeks or six decades, He's always molding and training us, informing us. And He's doing it for His good, for, our, for, for His glory, for our good. So, brothers and sisters, remember in all things, as a perfect, good, and heavenly Father, because of Christ Jesus, God is for us. He is for us. Even in the most intense times of instruction and training and discipline which He might give us, He is for us. He's seeking our good. And so, brothers and sisters, though it may not seem pleasant, we have every reason to keep putting that one foot in front of the other because God is always training us according to his goodness and his character. Let us pray. Father, blessed be your name, our Father and our King. We thank you that you are always seeking our good according to what you say is our good. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would help us to rest in that truth. To grow in him. To grow in you. And we pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.